Hello once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Our sermon today is number 798. The title is Special Protracted Prayer. Each week, as you may know, we work our way through a series of sermons by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, taking one a day, one week at a time. So this week we're reading 794 through to 800, and next week 801 to 807. And in each of those weeks we select a featured sermon. That's the one that we study. It's the one that you can read if you're not able to read every day. You can find us tweeting usually daily at Reading Spurgeon. And you can also find that uh, featured sermon via a newsletter that comes out if you sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. Media Gratii are the, uh, the sponsors, the producers, the uh, distributors of this podcast. And they do a range of excellent resources, including a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours, all of which you can find at mediagratii.org, alongside uh, other podcasts, including uh, something that I've done called A Word in Season, and also John Snyder's The Whole Council podcast. So please do go across there, have a look at what is available, and uh, use those uh, resources that have been made uh, available to us. Back then to today's featured sermon, Special Protracted Prayer, a sermon that was delivered on the Lord's Day morning of March the 1st, 1868, by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London, from the text Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Spurgeon's uh, sermon here again is not the, the pattern to which we are most often accustomed in his ministry. He's usually quite uh, rigid is the wrong word, but regular, let's say, in his approach. Uh, typically uh, three-point sermons with the, uh, the points announced up front, but he knows how to preach different kinds of sermons. He's versatile as well and he's he's quite ready to adapt. What I find fascinating about this particular sermon is that it it really lacks that more obvious outline and almost seems to take the form of a, a series of observation upon the Lord's practice of protracted or extended seasons of prayer. And the whole thing comes across as as quite conversational, devotional, meditative. It reads differently to the other sermons, and I'd be absolutely fascinated. It's one of those where you think, I wonder if you'd have detected in its delivery a different tone or a different set of expressions and gestures from the norm. Uh, can't answer those questions given the circumstances, but still interesting to think about how a different tone and a different pro approach can alter the whole balance of a sermon. And makes us, if we're preachers, ask, uh, is this kind of occasional departure useful, not just for us, stretching us and helping us to develop as ministers, but perhaps also for the congregations which we serve, that they might from time to time have something somewhat refreshing. So Spurgeon begins by uh, reminding us that if any man of woman born might have lived without prayer, it was surely the Lord Christ. In some parts of prayer, 
our Lord could take no share. He couldn't, didn't need to enter into our sinfulness that's in our nature. Then there were some things which were exceedingly needful to his disciples, which he didn't need to pursue himself. And then, although our glorious master did not require to pray in some of those respects in which it's most needful to us, yet, and here's his point, never was there a man who was more abundant in prayer and supplication, nor one in whom prayer was exercised with so much vehemence and importunity. So his point in the introduction is, if you'd been able to say of any man that he probably didn't need to pray, then it might have been Christ. And yet here is the man who is marked not just by his earnestness, not just by his, his vehemence, his energy, his importunity, his persistence in prayer, but everything that, that he does is soaked in prayer and in supplication makes the fascinating point that Christ was the greatest of preachers, but his prayers made even a greater, a deeper impression on his disciples than his sermons. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach, but they did exclaim, Lord, teach us to pray. That really hits home, doesn't it, when uh, we think about the, the, the age in which we live and the celebration, uh, and it's a it's a happy celebration and a proper one in some respects of, uh, of certain competent preachers. And yet, how many people say, I want to preach like that man or preach like that man? How few of us say, I want to pray like that man? That's what struck the disciples most of all concerning Christ. What stood out for them was his praying. And so says Spurgeon, while Christ was constant in his perpetual devotions, yet devout men have been wont, or it's been their inclination, to set apart times for extraordinary supplication. A man who doesn't pray usually is just a hypocrite when he pretends to pray specially. So we must not be miserly in prayer, neglecting it regularly, and only abounding in it on particular occasions, when ostentation, showing off, rather than sincerity may influence us. But... Even he who keeps a bounteous table sometimes spreads a more luxurious feast than at other times. Even so must we, if we habitually live near to God, select our extraordinary seasons in which the soul shall have her fill of fellowship. So his point is, it's good and it's right to take particular seasons, to take particular times when we seek to draw near to God in prayer. And that's what our Lord was doing there in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 when he went into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And the bulk then of what follows is this kind of observation of what our Lord did when he was on the mountain, how and where and why and what he might have prayed. So first of all, the place which he selected for it, a place of solitude, if you were drawn near to God in an extraordinary manner, you must take care to be entirely undisturbed. I know not how it is, says Spurgeon, but if ever one desires to approach very near to God, there's sure to be a knock at the door or some matter of urgent business or some untoward circumstance to tempt us from our knees. If you uh, try to pray, even ordinarily, let alone extraordinarily, you will know that uh, there's almost no season at which so many distracting thoughts flood into your mind. 
I sometimes actually keep a a notebook by me when I'm praying like that so that I can write down the things that come into my mind, get them out of my head and leave them to one side so I can get on with praying. The uh, the phone goes, the knock on the door, the, the, the child who needs some help. All these things can be legitimate in themselves, but it does feel as if prayer is the, the hardest thing to find that proper seclusion and solitude for. Now, did our Lord not resort to the mountain, says Spurgeon, in order to pray aloud? I cannot speak for others, says Spurgeon, but I, actually I know he's speaking for me. I often find it very helpful to myself to be able to speak aloud in private prayer. I do not doubt but that very spiritual minds can pray for a great length of time without the motion of the lips, but I think that most of us would often find it a spur and assistance if we could give utterance to our cries and sighs, no one being present to hear. It doesn't necessarily make our praying more more casual and conversational, but it can help us to concentrate and to think about what we're saying if we pray out loud. Then again, he avoided ostentation or showing off. He wasn't praying to be seen by others, either in terms of his earnestness or the length of time or whatever it may be. This needs to be a secret between God and your own soul, says Spurgeon. And then to prevent interruption, to give himself the opportunity of pouring out his whole soul and to avoid ostentation, Jesus sought the mountain. The place was was intentionally chosen for peace, for quiet, for privacy, for a lack of publicity. What a grand oratory for the Son of God, says Spurgeon. What a, a wonderful scene for him to pour out his heart before God. And when you think of uh, the way even Spurgeon describes it here, you think, oh, it would have been wonderful to be walking on that mountain at that night when Christ was praying and to overhear him pleading with his Father in heaven. Then he says the time selected by our master is also a lesson to us. He chose the silent hours of night. Spurgeon says that if we literally imitated him, we might altogether miss our way, for no doubt he chose the night because it was the most convenient, congenial and in every way appropriate, and to some of us the night might be the most inappropriate and unsuitable. So we're looking for the spirit rather than the letter of our Lord's practice. Spurgeon's point We should give to heavenly things that part of the day in which we can be most quiet, those hours which we can most fairly allot to it, without despoiling our other duties of their proper proportion of time. Our Saviour preached by day, and could not cease even to spend the day in prayer. By day the multitude needed healing, and our work went, Lord went about that particular work. So we are to take care never to present one duty to God stained with the blood of another, but to balance and proportion our different forms of service so that our life work may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So you've got the place, you've got the time, now you've got the protracted or drawn out or extended character of his prayer. He continued all night in prayer. Says Spurgeon, I do not think that we're bound to pray long as a general rule. I'm afraid, however, there is no great need to make the remark, for the most of Christians are short enough, if not far too short, in private worship. 
By the aid of the Holy Spirit, it's possible to throw by holy energy and sacred zeal as much prayer into a few minutes into as many as into many hours, for prevalent prayer is not measured by God by the yard or by the hour. Force is its standard rather than length. So he's balancing out then two things here. First of all, he says, most of us don't need to be encouraged to be briefer rather than longer because brevity is our normal practice. But the point isn't length alone. The point is force. Are we taken up by the Holy Spirit, assisted by him, so as to really plead with the Lord from our very souls? Spurgeon says, perhaps then we should take the time. We need to take the time. The true prayer is the soul's mounting up to God, and we little know what a night of prayer would do for us. Its effect we can scarcely calculate. One night alone in prayer might make us new men, changed from poverty of soul to spiritual wealth, from trembling to triumphing. Could we not, at least now and then, in these weary earthbound years, hedge about a single night for such enriching traffic with the skies? What? Have we no sacred ambition? Are we deaf to the yearnings of divine love? Spurgeon's asking us, isn't there some season, some night, some evening that we can give to seeking the face of God in prayer? And I think perhaps the tragedy for many of us would be to say, a whole night in prayer. We can barely conceive of of an hour or a quarter of an hour in prayer, perhaps, some of us. The idea of being able to pray for hours at a time seems so strange to us. If that's the case, and if you're saying, I could never do that, then my advice would be, well, start with 10 minutes, then start with 30 minutes, then start with an hour. That might be transformative for more of us. And I speak to myself as much as to anybody else. Why should we weary in heavenly employments, asks the preacher. Why do we grow weary when we're asked to watch with our Lord? Up, sluggish heart. Jesus calls you. Rise and go forth to meet the heavenly friend in the place in which he manifests himself. Now, he says, also consider the manner of Christ's prayer. He continued all night in prayer. And he uh, uses then this phrase, to God, along three different lines, and he says each of these may be a translation. To God, with God, and of God. And he's beating it thin now. How much of our prayer with regard to prayer to God is not actually prayer to God at all? Nominally, yes, but really a muttering to the winds, a talking to the air, for the presence of God is not realised by the mind. Are we praying with faith? Are we latching hold upon God in our praying? Do you know what it is, he asks, mentally to lay hold upon the great unseen one and to talk with him as really as you talk to a friend whose hand you grip, this sense of spiritual reality? How heavenly to speak right down into God's ear, to pour your heart directly into God's heart, feeling that you live in him as the fish live in the sea and that your every thought and word are discerned by him. How soon do we forget, he moans, that we're speaking to God and go on mechanically pumping up our desires, perhaps honestly uttering them, but forgetting to whom they are addressed. Prayer then is not just a a sort of a psychological discharge. It's not just an unburdening of ourselves. We are speaking to the gracious God of heaven and earth, and we must be 
consciously and conscientiously praying to God. Do let us learn from our master, says Spurgeon, to make our prayers distinctly and directly appeals to God. We must direct our prayers to God and maintain soul fellowship with him or our devotion will become a nullity, an emptiness, a name for a thing which is not. Then he gives us the Ethiopic translation, in prayer with God. And he says there's a, the language of communion, the highest order of prayer. To pray with God, do you know what that is? To be the echo of Jehovah's voice, to desire the Lord's desires and to long with his longings. This is a gracious condition to be in, when the heart's a tablet for the Lord to write upon, a coal blazing with celestial fire, a leaf driven with the heavenly wind. Oh, to be absorbed in the divine will, having one's whole mind swallowed up in the mind of God. This would be bliss itself for a whole night. And then in the prayer of God. Probably an incorrect translation, says Spurgeon, but we'll use it anyway. He says that this would then typically be interpreted to mean the noblest, the most intense, the most vehement prayer in which the whole man gathers up his full strength. Oh, says Spurgeon, what would it be like to pray in that way? The great, deep, vehement prayer of God. Brothers, I'm afraid that as a rule in our prayer meetings, we're much too decorous and even in our private prayers feel too much the power of formality. Oh, how I delight to listen to a brother who talks to God simply and from his heart, and I must confess I have no small liking to those rare old-fashioned Methodist prayers which are now quite out of date. He says the Methodists have got too genteel these days. Praise for a revival of those glorious violent prayers which flew like hot shot against the battlements of heaven. Oh, for more moving of the posts of the doors in vehemence, more thundering at the gates of mercy. I'd sooner attend a prayer meeting where there were groans and cries all over the place and cries and shouts of hallelujah than be in your polite assemblies where everything's as dull as death and decorous as the whitewashed sepulchre. How many of our prayer meetings are like that? Just very staid, very uh, pedestrian, very dull. How many of us are really pleading with God? Oh, for more of the prayer of God, the whole body, soul and spirit working together, the whole man aroused and stirred up to the highest pitch of intensity to wrestle with the Most High. Such, I have no doubt, the prayer of Jesus was on the cold mountain's side. Then again, says Spurgeon, what about the occasion of this special devotion. He continued all night in prayer after he'd been upbraided or assaulted by the Pharisees. The best answer to the slanderers of the ungodly is to be more constant in communion with God, says Spurgeon. Now, has it been so with any of you? Have you been persecuted or despised? Have you passed through any unusual form of trial? Then celebrate an unusual season of prayer. This is the alarm bell which God rings. Haste to him for refuge. See to it that in this your time of trouble you betake yourself to the mercy seat with greater diligence. Not just then uh, oppression or accusation or persecution, but now opportunity. Christ had said to his disciples, Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labourers into his harvest. So, Christian man, if you enter upon a new enterprise or engage in something that is weightier and more extensive than what you've done before, select a night or a day and set it apart for special communion with the Most High. 
If you are to pray, you must work. But if you are to work, you also must pray. Balance your praying and working is Spurgeon's advice. And when you've reached the full tale of the one, do not diminish anything of the other. The day of your profession of your faith publicly should be a consecrated day. I recollect, he says, rising before the sun to seek my master's presence on the day when I was buried with him in baptism. It seemed to me a solemn ordinance not to be lightly undertaken or flippantly carried out, a duty which, if done at all, should be performed in the most solemn and earnest manner. What is baptism without fellowship with Christ? To be buried in baptism but not with him, what is it? I would say to you young people who are joining the church now, Mind you do not do it thoughtlessly, but in coming forward to enlist in the army of Christ, set us apart a special season for self-examination and prayer. Spurgeon takes all these various elements of church life so seriously. He goes on, And if you've been studying the word of God and cannot master a passage of scripture, if some truth of revelation staggers you, now again is a time to set yourself like Daniel by prayer and supplication to find out what is the meaning of the Lord in the book of his prophecy. Indeed, such occasions will often occur to you who are spiritual, and I charge you by the living God, if you would be rich in grace, if you would make great advances in the divine life, if you would be eminent in the service of your master, Attend to these occasions. Get an hour alone, an hour, aye, two hours a day if you can, and do not go away from your master's presence till your face is made to shine as once the face of Moses did when he'd been long upon the mount alone with God. Here then is this survey of Christ's spending time alone at night, all night, in prayer to his Father in heaven. Why did he choose the place? Why did he choose the time? What was the character of his prayer? What was the manner of his prayer? What was the occasion of his prayer? Spurgeon's given us, or tried to give us, a sense of what lay behind this extended season of prayer to the God of heaven. And having done that, he now turns it by way of a a number of applications, challenges, and encouragements to the church. Now, Again, Spurgeon himself has a reason for this, an occasion, because the church there, and I think it's an excellent practice, had given itself a a season of special devotion. And Spurgeon is using this sermon to stir and to direct the saints in how they may so pray. Here are his applications then. First of all, a church in order to have a blessing upon its special times of prayer, must abound in constant prayer at other times. I do not believe, he says, in spasmodic efforts for revival. The special occasions should be the outgrowths of ordinary, active, healthy vigour. If they're not, those occasional efforts will be exhausting and probably quite debilitating. To neglect prayer all the year round then and... and afterward to celebrate a special week. Is that much better than hypocrisy? asks Spurgeon. To forsake the regular prayer meetings, but to come in crowds to a special one? What is this? Does it not betray superficiality or the effervescence of mere excitement? Isn't it just shallow and frothy, he says? The church ought always to pray. And he rebukes those who do not give themselves to prayer, just as he commends those who do. There are some of you, he says, who never come, 
and I suppose you are such poor things that you are not of much good whether you come or stay away. But on the whole, the most of the people who fear God in this place are abundant in their attendance at the means of grace, not to be blamed in any measure whatever for forsaking the assembling of themselves together, for they do draw near to God most regularly, and such prayer meetings have we every Monday, as I fear are not to be found anywhere else. Are you, then, a praying man or woman? Do you gather with the saints when there are opportunities for the church to pray? If, then, he says, men ought always to pray and not to faint, much more Christian men. Ungodly men are dumb of heart and will, but we who have the will and the power to intercede dare not be silent. It is the church's privilege to pray. The door of grace is always open for her petitions, and they never return empty-handed. So there should be frequent prayer meetings. These prayer meetings should be constantly attended by all. Every man should make it a point of duty to come as often as possible to the place where prayer is wont or accustomed to be made. I wish that all throughout this country, he says, the prayers of God's churches were more earnest and constant, to which we add our Amen. It might make a man weep tears of blood to think that in our dissenting churches, in so many cases, the prayer meetings are so shamefully attended. I could indicate places that I know of, situated not many miles from where we now stand, where there are sometimes so few in attendance that there are scarcely praying men enough to keep up variety in the prayer meeting. Perhaps you know what that's like. The, uh, the distress, the grief, the disappointment when there are so few voices to uh, share the load and to spread the burden and to seize the opportunity. It can be uh, very discouraging to those who do come. It's wearying for those who are participating but perhaps not able to lead in prayer. I know towns, he says, where the prayer meetings put off during the summer months as if the devil would give you the, the summer off. I know of agricultural districts where they're always put off during the harvest. But he says, I cannot understand large congregations where you cannot have enough people coming out to make a couple of decent services in the week. He says the prayer meeting and the lecture, the Bible study, they get pulled together because there's not enough interest or appetite. And then they say that God doesn't bless the word. How can he bless the word? They say, our conversions are not as numerous as they were, and they wonder how it is that we at the tabernacle have so large an increase month, month by month. Do you wonder, brothers, that they have not a blessing when they do not seek it? Do you wonder that we have it when we do seek it? That's but a natural law of God's own government, that if men will not pray, neither shall they have. And if men will pray and pray vehemently, God will deny them nothing. Now that's not formulaic, that's faith at work. We need to ask ourselves whether or not as Christians and as churches we have given ourselves to prayer with constancy, vehemency and importunity. We are constant in prayer, we are earnest in prayer, we are persistent in prayer. The Lord recover us from this sin, says Spurgeon. Now, that should be our regular pattern our constant approach. But, diligent as we may be in prayer on regular occasions, still the church ought to have her special seasons. The church should have her special praying times because she, like Christ on the occasion on which he prayed, has her special needs. 
There are times when spiritual epidemics fall upon churches and congregations. Sometimes it's the disease of pride or luxury or worldliness. At other times there are many falling into overt sin. Are there not needs for us? Are there not challenges to us? Are there not opportunities for us? Are there not times when the Holy Spirit has stirred peculiar earnestness and special desires in our souls? What's part of our response to that? It must be to plead with God for his blessing, to hold back sin and to move forward the kingdom that belongs to him. I do not know of any sermons, says Spurgeon, preached here without conversions, but yet those times of special meeting, those solemn assemblies, have always been a hundredfold blessed of God. Now, very few preachers today can say they don't know of a sermon that wasn't blessed to conversion. How much more, then, ought we to give ourselves to special pleadings for God's converting power in our midst? And then, says Spurgeon, It should be our endeavour to bring power into these special meetings. They ought to be profitable if they're lawful and necessary. So we must come to them as Christ did to his Father, with a burning zeal for God's glory. He could say, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. Burn and blaze, my brothers, with love to God, says the preacher. Wait upon him this afternoon. Let that be a special private season of prayer and ask him to teach you how to love him, show you how to reverence him and fire you with an intense ambition to spread abroad the savour of his name. Jesus Christ drew near to God in prayer with a wondrous love to the souls of men. Those tears of his were not for himself, but for others. Those sighs and cries were not for his own pangs, but for the sorrows and the sins of men. Try to feel as Christ did, says Spurgeon. Get a tender heart, an awakened conscience, quickened sympathies. And then if you come up to the house of God, the prayer meetings cannot be dull. Seek to be bathed in the blood of Christ. Go to the wounds of Christ and get lifeblood for your prayers. And so in closing he says, Above all the churches of this country, we have a special need and a special encouragement to make our prayers things of power. Why? Consider what a multitude we are. Pray for this great church. Where our power utterly fails, let us implore the divine power to come in, that all may be kept right. He says, with all that we've got lying upon us, with all the need that is among us, we need to pray because of the battles that we fight. Some have fallen, he says. We've to confess that with a blush that crimsons our cheek. Some have fallen shamefully. So pray that others may not fall and that the good men and true among us may be upheld by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Whether it's five or or 50 or 500 or 5,000, look around at the people to whom you belong. Do you not need the power and the grace of God amongst you to keep you faithful and to make you fruitful? And so, think too of the agencies which we are employing. Again, Spurgeon could say that for the tabernacle. How should we say it for ourselves? Every week the sermons preached here are scattered by tens of thousands all over the globe. Do you have some kind of broadcast of your sermons? Does it go onto a website? then the same could be true of you. Think of the people to whom it goes, maybe tens rather than tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds. But is this not an opportunity? In your Sunday schools, he goes on, 
in your track distributions, in your city missions, in your street preachings, in your colportage, the, the distribution of literature, in your orphanage, in the, the, the sending out of the missionaries, everywhere you're seeking to glorify Christ. Do not, I beseech you, forget the one thing needful in all this. Spurgeon is concerned that we not then be mere workers and not prayers that we not be mere activists rather than pleaders. Be not foolish builders, he says, who will buy marble and precious stones at great cost and then forget to lay the cornerstone securely. If it's worthwhile to serve God, it's worthwhile to pray that the service may be blessed. Spurgeon says, I can't speak to you as I want to. The earnestness of my heart prevents my lips uttering what I feel, but if there be any bonds of love between us, above all, if there be any bonds of love between us and Christ, by his precious blood, by his death sweat, by his holy life and by his agonizing death, I do beseech you to strive together with us in your prayers that the Spirit of God may rest upon us and to God shall be the glory. Amen and Amen. And so say all of us. Whatever we do, wherever we are, wherever and however we serve, is this not an appropriate response to the example of Christ before us, that we may learn to pray for the Spirit of Christ to bless us and help us, and for the God whom we serve to be glorified in our midst. If that's the case, then please do pray. Pray for yourself, pray for the, the work of the kingdom, pray for your pastors, Pray for, uh, for preachers like me and others like me around the world that the glory of Christ may be known through the preaching of the word. And do join us, if you're able, next week for sermons 801 to 807 and our featured sermon, which is it's a great sermon next week, Apostolic Exhortation, Sermon 804. Until then, may God bless each one of us and make us truly those who watch and work and pray. <laughs>